I'm so honored to be with you today. You know, every week we bring on a guest who will inspire us, who will share information with us that will stir our soul. And today is no exception. We are bringing on a guest who has a wonderful uh, life path and career path as a chef, as well as a cookbook author. And she happens to be from the beloved country of Haiti. She's bringing recipes from Haiti, stories from Haiti, the lifeblood from Haiti. And as you know, right now, this is a very tender time for Haiti that has been under siege yet again because of the weather. So she'll be able to share with us her personal stories, updates about what's going on in the country now, and just her incredible journey as a chef. So please, right now, join me in welcoming Nadege Florimond. Thank you so much, Harriet, for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here, Nadege, and I know you have an incredible story to share with us. I want to start with your homeland. You know, Haiti has undergone so many trials and tribulations, let's just say in the past couple of months, from the murder of the president of the country, trying to figure out what in the world is going on with the government, which in and of itself was horrific and also points to generations of issues with the government, right? And then we have this tremendous uh, earthquake, which has shook and killed so many. How are you doing? How's your family with all of these things that have been happening? Thank you so much, Harriet, for bringing that up. As you know, Haiti's close and dear to my heart, mm-hmm. I, uh, even though I left since I was seven years old. And my brother wasn't even born in Haiti. I think there's a connection that people from Haiti, I'm sure most people have it to their country, but being from Haiti, I, I have to say that I feel like no matter how many generations removed we are, people always feel very much connected. So everything that happens, the diaspora, people living abroad, we feel it to our core because we're still very connected. My mother is from Lekai, which is the south region of Haiti. My, my whole family is from that region. And my mom just recently moved back to the south um, in, in a little city called Cavallon. So these are the, the impacted uh, areas uh, in the South. <laughs> a friend of mine would just speak. Wait, where she went, where she just went back? Was she that- went back, yeah, she went back a few months back. She she moved back and yeah, she, she you know, we weren't able to get in contact with her initially, just, just phone communication, but when finally did, she is okay. A brick fell on her leg, uh, but for the most part, she is fine. Most of my family homes are fine. And, you know, of course, but with the rain and everything else that's happening, it's like Haiti's on the fault lines, right? Earthquake lines, weather lines, political fault lines for the yeah. last few Uh, beings that play, you you know, playing and, you know, playing the different strings and Hades sure. court, those crossfires. But then when things like Mother Nature hits, you're like, yes, as much as that is outside of our control, but we also know the political instability, the economic instability also impacts how people are impacted by natural disasters, right? Because infrastructure is not properly built yeah. because of these other issues we mentioned. So it is really disheartening that 
the first Black republic, a country that has impacted so many others, helped so many other countries get their independence, has been basically used and brutalized (laughs) over the last few centuries, almost as punishment for refusing to accept slavery (laughs) as a way. You know what, Nadej, I'm glad you just brought it home because first of all, in WBAI, we get to tell the truth all the time. So we can talk about this uh, unveiled. And it is true. If you have read just about anything about the history of Haiti, you don't have to dig deep to find this, that Haiti was the first emancipated uh, uh, Black country in the Caribbean, right? The very first one. And, you know, Europeans didn't like that. and, And they still don't like it. And so we know that there have been repercussions that have reverberated over all of these years, decades, centuries. I mean, from the beginning, like how dare you become free? Yes, yes. And then it sets a, it, it, and especially like being the, through a slave rebellion, right? Through a slave yeah. uh, a rebellion uprising. So they did not want that to spread. They did not want that to be an example to other enslaved countries because it basically was like, well, if this country does it and they're thriving, then others would 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 be in, inspired and empowered by it. So for That's years, right. Haiti was basically uh, shunned, you know, from 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 trading, from from cut off from all resources, all right? Resources, and really had to survive on our own. And beyond that, then you have place, you know, the country like we we studied the American Revolution in school, right? And it was used right. as a source of inspiration for Americans for the United States. So. Imagine a country like Haiti having received its independence, yet the colonizer coming back and telling you that you need to pay them, basically held Haiti for ransom. Yes. You had to pay this. Uh, I don't even have the number right now, so I don't want to say a wrong number, but it's a crazy amount of debt, yes. which the U.S. supported and backed. And after, you know, um, years of refusing and threatening to come back and reinvade the country that they basically gave in and were forced to pay off this debt for decades. And, and isn't it true that it's still being paid off? It I just think? was recently paid off, I think, in like 19, like it was like almost 100 years that it took them to pay it off. Right. Okay. So then, I didn't even realize but, that it had been paid off because the mythology is so tremendous that that debt is something that gets talked about a lot. Just, I want to make sure people understand what we're talking about, that the enslavers made forced Haitians to pay a debt based upon that extrication from slavery. It, it's yeah, because yeah, they felt nonsense. like they lost land, they lost yeah. you know, their crops. So this is what I'm saying. So imagine if England had asked the U.S., oh, you got your freedom, now you owe us and you need to pay us. So imagine that's money that could have been used for your infrastructure to build sure. your schools, to build your systems, to build your government and really create a, you know, a, um, infrastructure within your country. But you have this huge debt that you're forced to pay. And again, let's not forget the political aspect where you always have United States um, 
interference in terms of how the country uh, is ruled. In 1915, you know, the the U.S. occupied Haiti, actually occupied Haiti, you know, under the guise of protecting U.S., you know, interests and different things. So there is always outside forces that is impacting the country. And then, like I said, all of these come to play out when you do have something like an earthquake or a hurricane because the systems and the structures and the institutions were never there to really well, get to the what, people. One of the things that people talk about a lot, Nadej, and, and I remember it in particular, I can't even believe it was 2010, that long ago, when the previous huge earthquake occurred. And at that point, I mean, it was so devastating. It was international news in a way that I feel was different in yes. terms of coverage of Haiti. Yes. And many people uh, offered resources. There was a flood Everything. of money that was sent globally. Billions. And then where did it go? And, and so then the question came about infrastructure. And sadly, the infrastructure isn't there, but also the Haitians were uh, faulted for not having the infrastructure and Therefore, the money was squandered. You know, there are a lot of questions about what yeah, happened. Yeah, because who was managing? Because there was supposed to be an overseer of that, yes. movie, right? Uh, or name names, <laughs> right? We won't turn this into a whole political discussion. but I Well, but it's important just to, to give some context, I think, because the country has been under siege for so long. At that point, 2010, so many people were hurt. And the millions of dollars that came did not go in large part to where they were supposed to go. I remember I interviewed um, Wyclef Jean a little bit after that time, and he was telling me how he came to see what he could do to help. And, and he knew people. So at least he said because he knew people on the ground, whatever resources he was able to, uh, to raise got somewhere, got to, because he had a person or you know, a, a small group who could make sure, well, these dollars or these products would get to a particular place. But he described how challenging it was because whatever we understand, like in this country, the United States, how the government has t- tremendous infrastructure. You know, even if, if it's bureaucratic, you know, X item or it's dollars. Well seen, right? <laughs> yes. And, and, and so here we find ourselves with people who were just getting over for some, because it takes a long time if you don't have a lot of money to to survive and thrive based upon a disaster that was, I can't even believe it was 11 years ago. And then here we are today. So you say your mother lives in an area that was affected. How, how are people doing at this point? Uh, f- first of all, after the earthquake, is there any calm at all at this point? No, no, not at all. Because like I said, we went from earthquake to hurricane. Mm. <laughs> we went from earthquake to hurricane. That's right. That's right. We went from earthquake to hurricane. Like I said, the diaspora is very connected to Haiti. That's the very thing. That's why I say the degree of separation is very small, you know, because you are even reared as a child, even when you're not born in Haiti, that, you know, you send back, you support. This is That's your right. aunt. You're on the phone with them, even though you've never met them. So we are very connected to Haiti. Even though I left a long time ago, uh, you know, we're very connected. So we really 
hit the ground running because like, you know, a lot of us say this ain't our first rodeo, right? We've done this before. So everybody just mobilizes and support uh, their hometowns, support their families. That's one way. And then what I love about this one, this time around, people are very big about supporting Haitian based organizations Good. because people donated to the Red Cross. And I think we got six houses out of it, right? After dollars, right? So people are starting to understand like it is, we're always going to be there. Haitians are always going to be there. You know, there was a time when, you know, uh, when Matali was in power and we were really supporting and pushing tourism. But we think part of, even though it was a beautiful initiative, because I do a culinary tour to Haiti. I take people to Haiti because I think everybody should enjoy Haiti and through the food is the best way. But the real base is really the Haitian diaspora because we're always going to be there because we understand what's at play. As soon as there's some disaster, some political turmoil, we don't run away. We just be like, what do we do next? So the same thing with this new disaster, Haitians have really mobilized and understand like now it's time to put our resources in each other. The organizations that's been there for years, Haiti IT Community Trust, Foncose, Capra Care, Gascov Clerge, organizations that are really based in Haiti, that have been doing work in the South, that have hope yes. for Haiti. These people are rooted and they're really committed to the long-term work at play. And we're yeah. really, that's where we're funding our money now, as well as our resources and our time. That's beautiful. You have written several cookbooks. I started, because you know, we just learned about each other what feels like about five minutes ago. But what I do, and my audience knows that I am a big believer in reading folks' books. So I started with your first book, Haiti Uncovered, which is a beautiful photographic journey throughout the beautiful country of Haiti, along with tremendous storytelling. And so I'd like for you to describe to me, starting with this book, because Nadej, I think a lot of people have glimpses of what Haiti is like, but really don't know that much about the country. And this is like a beautiful history book, I believe. So what what made you write this book? And tell me some highlights of it. Thank you so much for that question. When I thought of writing this book, I thought of like my sibling, like I said, my, my younger brother who was born here. Um, and other cousins and family members that either hadn't been to Haiti, had only heard about Haiti. I remembered my campus days at Columbia because I went to Columbia for undergrad. And I always tell people, that's when I became super Haitian. Because I ah. left when I was seven years old, but it was on that very white campus that I became extra Haitian. So wait, let's, let's, let's understand that. What happened? Because you're right. It is a very white campus, very elite campus, excellent school. But for you to be in the presence of so much whiteness, what made you embrace your Haitian-ness more? Because I think it only goes two directions when you're in those environments, Harriet. I think it's either you're like, let me try to assimilate as much as possible. But then I think some of us tap into this, what makes me special? Mm. I think you start seeing yourself a little bit more deeply when you are in an environment that is not your norm. So... It is. It was during those days, those years, that I was like, wow, Haiti's a big part of me. It's how I think. It's how I process. It's the proverbs. It's my ideologies around a lot of things. It's my kindness, all of these things. So at that time, I was like, you know what? 
I'm just going to share Haiti with everybody. And I figured when I started noticing, because growing up in Brooklyn and Flatbush, I knew other Haitians. So I didn't realize just how much people did not know about Haiti beyond that six o'clock news tagline of poorest country in the Western hemisphere. Right. So I was like, oh, y'all need to know. Y'all need to learn more. Y'all need to know. And y'all about to know. And what I knew how to do, having grown up with my Haitian uh, father, was raised by a single dad was how to cook. And I use food. I always use food as a way to connect. It's what I understood. It's what I loved. And I started cooking on that campus. But for me, it was kind of like, I want to tell you about Haiti through the food. Mm -hmm. I didn't know exactly that's what I was trying to do, but I just know that I wanted people to understand Haiti. So when it came to writing a book years later, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm a chef. I should write a cookbook. It would be nice because it helps your expertise and it helps you, you know, solidify yourself in your space. But I was like, what do I care about? Like, what do I read? What story do I really want to tell? And I was like, this is an opportunity to tell Haiti's story that even if you are in Minnesota, Arkansas, Alaska, and it's the very first piece of writing you ever saw about Haiti, that it would be something that you would learn something. Yes, you would learn how to make a nice fried grill, the Haitian pork dish. You would learn how to make the black rice, but you would also know a little bit about the history and also through those travel stories, humanize the country a bit. And what would you say are the key things that you would like people to know about Haiti? Um, I think key is that, yes, um, Haiti is great. Haiti is greatness personified. <laughs> you know, when you go to this country and you stand on the citadel, you look at this fort, this amazing masterpiece that was built by slaves with no major technology and you see right. this presence of something like that we had a king and then it's a king that was um you know um we had a king so i want that greatness to be uh understood i want people to understand how connected haiti is to the rest of the world right because that same king is from grenada <laughs> you know <laughs> he was born in grenada because we remember at that time nationality we didn't really have that, right? All we knew was that we were slaves. Bookman, who incited the Haitian Revolution, is from Jamaica, you know? So just really how connected we are. And once Haiti had its independence, how it helped Colombia get free and all of these other South American uh, countries get free mm -hmm. and what a powerful force it was centrally to other people's freedom. So I want people to know that connection exists. And then just like there's humanity, right? There's humanity because I think oftentimes that because we're seeing those clips of earthquakes and hurricanes and poverty, that we forget this is a people with culture. This is a people with art, with great food, with traditions. And that's what I try to highlight in the book. Like through food, this is the traditions that come into play. These are the dishes that come into play at this time. This is what this represents because there are different spaces, right? So I think yeah. it's a lot of times when we look at social media, sometimes people are like, I remember when I was writing the, the book and I was doing like an Indiegogo campaign because it's a coffee table cookbook and I wanted it to be an amazing project. And this gentleman, non-Haitian, said to me, well, with all the countries, with all the problems that your country has, really a book and, I'm, and a cookbook at that, I was livid because I was like, wow. So this 
human being has resolved us as a people to just problems and poverty and issues and forget that there's still a culture that can be shared, that someone can learn from, that can still bring happiness to someone. And that are people within the country that are living joyfully through this life and this culture that they own and, and have. So I felt that's important too. So to humanize Haiti and understand that it is right. more than what that's, that's powerful. And I think it does that. I mean, I, the pictures are beautiful. The stories are vivid. So you really do take people into the world and life and lifestyle of Haiti, which is so important. Now you wrote a book in the midst of COVID. And I, I always ask people, if you are going to look back at some point and get asked this question, what did you do during COVID? What is it? One of the things you did was to, to create another book. Tell us about this book. Yeah, this one was not intentional, funny enough, because my livelihood is catering. Like at yes. least prior to this, I, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Like I have a real estate business. I have, um, you know, my coaching business. But catering has been the mainstay for the last 19 years. I started it my junior year while I was at Columbia. Uh, it kind of, you know, from a hobby side hustle that grew into, I've catered at the White House, catered for Dr. Oz, catered at BT, catered all these things. So catering was what I did for a living. Right. So when we went into shutdown, it was kind of like, wait, how am I going to eat? What am I going to do? How am I going to pay my bills? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so we panicked. And the initial thought is like panic because it's like we didn't know how long. So I think there was that fear that that existed. But then again, that Haitian, you know, like, okay, we get up. This is what we have. This is the situation. So we still need to do what we got to do. So even though we couldn't go outside, I was like, what do I have control over? Yes. What do I have control over right now? And I just knew that I had control over like what I ate. Cause I hadn't, I had, even though I run a catering business, food had become very much a business for me. Mm-hmm. Prior to COVID, it became very much a transaction. You hired sure. me to create your wedding, your birthday party, your events. But for myself, I ate out most of my meals. So like everybody else, even though as a chef, through COVID, I started cooking for myself. Huh. But I always considered food like a team sport. Hence why I love catering. I love cooking for people. Since I couldn't do that, I just turned on my camera and I started cooking live. I started cooking for my Instagram followers. I have a very supportive group of followers uh, over the years, my Facebook followers. So I had two phones. I'd cook on Instagram. We'd joke <laughs> around and we'd talk. And I just would make these recipes. And then people would love it. And I was like, oh, this is how I really cook. I'm more like a fusion cook. Like my first book is very much Haitian traditional uh, food because I wanted it to be about Haiti. Yes. This one was like, well, me, I'm a child of the world. I love to travel. I love to eat out in New York. So I was cooking things that I created, the fusion dishes that I I would develop through my various like culinary experiences. And people would be like, well, you should write a book. I was like, because they would be like, how much of this? How much of that? What should I put in this coconut French toast? What should I put in this Oh, paella, what should I put in this planted lasagna? And I was like, oh, I don't know. They're like, you should write a book. And I was like, okay. I didn't think about it. And then eventually I was like, okay, I'll write a book for the recipes. But for me, again, food is storytelling. I didn't just want to write a cookbook. I was, that's why it's a culinary journal because I was like, we just went through some crazy 
stuff right now. You know, I can't curse. But we went through some crazy things. And I just remember the various nights and days and feelings that happened during those initial months. So as I was writing the the recipes and I was like, but this is not me. I like to tell stories. I want to share things with people and the lessons and the experiences. So I decided to turn it into an opportunity to share what came out of COVID-19. Yes, these recipes are great, but what are some of the feelings, the emotions that perhaps maybe it wasn't just me going through? Because this is a time of Black Lives Matter. Ahmed Arbery had just been killed. Like a lot were happening. And I we experienced all of this in our homes under a pandemic. So there's emotions that came with that. When you're laying in bed at night by yourself, not having been out for days, you start thinking about your childhood. You think about people you've met. So a lot of those memories sparked. And I was like, what lessons came to me in those moments? And that's what I shared through Taste of Solitude, a culinary memoir. It was like food as therapy, my cooking mm-hmm. throughout the days to help me get through it, but also the emotions and the feelings that arise in that came out of that moment for me as well. And in, in in this book, because this one I haven't got my fingers on yet, just simply because we just met and I had to get you on immediately. <laughs> How many recipes are in there? And is this also uh, photo-driven as well as story-driven? Yes, yes. I'm very big on pictures. So this one, since it's a culinary journal, the pictures are very much, you'll see a lot of me in, in that book. It's mm-hmm pictures of me in different places in my home, uh, the food. So um, every recipe has a, a, a picture. Um, it's not a hardcover, but it's still like a, a, a full colored book. It's um, over 25 recipes, about 28 mm-hmm. recipes in there. And, you know, it's just like I said, it's, it's, it's a it's a beautiful book, just like the first one. Just the other Haiti Uncovered is like 304 pages. Like you said, it's like a history book, encyclopedia. This one is more like a beautiful photo journey of like my experience. But again, for me, the stories I share are as personal as they are to me. I hope and I under, I know others probably experience them or can learn something from them as well. And so the book, again, is called? Taste of Solitude, a culinary memoir. And in Taste of Solitude, what would you say stand out as, like, what is the first thing that you want us to make from this cookbook? Ooh, there's a few. I must give two because I love them both. That's good, that's good. The coconut French toast with the coconut rum syrup. You're killing me already, girl. (laughs) Yum. And then I have a caramelized onion grilled cheese sandwich sounds basic but it is herbed with like i have like herb like butter on it it is absolutely delicious well it sounds delicious must tries oh my goodness so nadez i want to go back for a minute because you mentioned your career as a chef and so what what dream leapers is about my show it's all and and this platform that i've created it's all to help people access and activate their dreams and what i have discovered is that we often think we're going down one road and then actually we're supposed to be going down another. So you told us that you were a student at Columbia University when you started owning your Haitian nest and became a chef cooking your food while a junior at Columbia. 
what were you planning to do? What what were you going to Columbia to do? And and what was that pivot like to go from whatever that plan was into being a chef? Oh, wow. Thank you. Great question. Uh, so as a good immigrant Haitian child, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was supposed to either be a doctor, lawyer, an engineer. Everything yep. else was a failure. <laughs> so there are a lot of amens going on right now in the mm-hmm. audience. Girl, I understand what you're talking about. Never in my wildest dream did I ever imagine food being the path for me. And I think for years, even as I was earning and making a living doing it, it still wasn't something that I accepted. So, like I said, I grew up with a single dad who loved food, who loved to cook, showed me how to cook since I was eight years old. And I would cook. His friends would come over. They played card games. And I'm cooking. He's showing me off. But I was still going to school to become this doctor or lawyer. So when I got to Columbia, I studied political science. That's what my degree is in. I have a political science degree because I wanted to be a lawyer. I I, I, I still love law, because, the idea of law. I, mean, I, I don't love law. I love the idea of law because I'm a thinker by nature. Hence why even through food, I I do so many other things because I'm always trying to find ways to have conversations that are important to me around food. So while at Columbia, the plan was to be a lawyer. Like I said, I started cooking uh, as a fun way to connect with my friends, teach them about Haiti. And then everyone loved the food. Then they started asking me to cater for the student clubs, the Black Student Association, the African Student Association. I was the resident chef. Wow. What, administrators would come in. Who's the new uh, caterer you guys are using? Who's the new restaurant? They're like, not there. You're like, oh, you have a business. I was like, I guess I do. I had no <laughs> but I had a business. I was getting paid like $5 per person to cook for a student group. So I thought it was just like my side hustle and they love my food. But then when administrators would taste the food, other people, when it was outside of campus events, they're like, oh my God, this food is good. Who's the caterer? They're like her. She's the one, Nadej. Wow. So then... I remember my first real off-campus job was the librarian at Columbia, at Butler Library. His name was Trevor Dawes. Wonderful, very posh uh, gentleman. And he's like, my mom's turning 50 or 60 at the time. I'd like her to throw her party. Nothing crazy. I'm not trying to spend too much. And I was like, oh, how much? He's like, $40 per person. I was like, oh, my God, I'm rich. <laughs> rich because I was like that's 200 people because I was trying to find dollars per person Harriet so I was like oh my god this is real money so I I went online googled how to be a caterer started reading <laughs> books, got all the books I could because I was just doing it small 20 30 40 50 people right we had a wonderful party for 200 used the money bought all this equipment in Chinatown so it was just kind of like oh okay then my friends were like oh this is nice because they were the football team was my servers initially. <laughs> I love that. So everyone always loved it because whatever I did know, even if I didn't know it, and it's still part of like my, any advice I give to any new entrepreneurs is just lean into things and be willing to at least explore it, but at least be committed to excellence in it. Right. I may not have known fully what I was doing or how to do it, but I was committed to getting there. I was committed to learning. So I got all the books, uh, started watching YouTube videos just so I could learn what does it take to really do this thing. Even though in my head, it was just something I did on the side. Time for graduation. I was like, well, I don't really want to go to law school yet. Let me study for the LSATs. Since I have a political science degree, I went to the small business administration office, like a score, I think score. Yeah. 
advice. Because again, I'm like a thinker. So I was like, oh, what? If you have a, I have the side hustle, what do I do with it? But because I, I don't want to go to law school yet. So go get advice. And the young woman, her name is Celeste Morris. We're still friends to this day. Celeste Morris, she was a political consultant as well as a, she was working for school. And she's like, you study political science? You want to start a business? Hmm. Get a job. Cater on the weekend. She, we still laugh about that. And she's like, I said that? I can't believe it. I was like, you did. And it was the best thing you ever did. Because I, she was like, use your degrees. Where are you moving to? I was like, I'm moving back to Brooklyn. So I, she asked me to look up for my uh, local elected officials. So I started working for council member Yvette Clark at the time, who is now yes. Congresswoman Yvette Clark. Yes. Who <laughs> was recently, that was 2003. And this past weekend, she was at our grand opening at my events venue, giving me a proclamation. Oh, um, it just comes back full circle. So I got mm-hmm. the job as community liaison for council member Yvette Clark in the 40th council district in Brooklyn. And then I was like, okay, but this, I catered on the weekends, but then politics is so time-consuming. It involves you going out to board meetings, community this, community that. So I was like, you know what? In 2004, I was like, you know what? I have $900 in my bank account. My rent is $980. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, it's, and I'm that person when it's time, it's time. It's like, it doesn't need to make sense. Maybe now I'm older, it may be different, but I was like, no, it's it's now or never. Let me try this. I do have a degree. I could always get a job, right? I can always go back to work. Let me try this while I study for the LSATs. <laughs> so I left my job. In that LSATs was always there, hanging over yeah, your head, right? I think because my Haitianness wouldn't let me accept that I was just cooking or living mm. initially. And my dad was livid. He was like, I, I sent you to an Ivy League and you decide you want to cook for a living. This is what you're supposed to be running away from, you know? Well, I understand because we come from a place, we come from countries where who are the well-to-do people? It is the doctors, the lawyers. Plus our parents want the status of having, you know, a doctor or lawyer child. So well, I- and also, also, let me add, because my father was a judge, a lawyer and then a judge. I had the same thing. I grew up here, but I I think it's more than the status. I think it's the security. I think our parents wanted us to, they, if they were able to reach the security, which my father did, or reach for it as many others, I think your father wanted that for you to ensure that you had enough money in the bank to have the house. And I, I want us to just take a moment to acknowledge our parents and grandparents and all those people who said, look, if you, if you do these things, you will be in a secure place. It doesn't mean that it necessarily works for all of us, but I think their intention was good. Don't you? No, it, I agree. No, I agree. And that, yeah. That's what I said initially. I was like, yeah. where they're from, these are the people with the houses. These are the people yes. who speak well. These are the people whose kids yes. are in the so we definitely, and I tell young people that all the time, your parents don't hate you. Oh, they love <laughs> you. They love you and they want you to do well because it's like at the end of the day, this is the people that for what they from what they saw, like they exactly. didn't see a starving lawyer or starving doctor. They're That's just, right. They didn't see starving artists, you know, they and, just, and starving chefs. So they yeah. So they know anything that you're trying to create on your own. And even now we know that it is riskier, right? 
you may not be as happy as doing those traditional jobs, but there is a security in terms of a check that comes with it. So I definitely agree with you. And that's why I tell people all the time, like it took me a while as a young person to understand that, no, your parents just want good for you, but you just have to know if it's not what you want. And I also tell young people, you got to be willing to do the work though. You can't be going to mom and dad and asking, well, can I buy $10? Can I buy $20? When they were trying to help you get that security, if you chose not to listen, you got to be ready to to deal with it. Take care of yourself. There's no question about it. And so you you were able to uh, leave. You left uh, Congresswoman, well, she wasn't Congresswoman then, but uh, Representative Clark's office and start your business. And that was in 2004? 2004. And then I've been studying for the LSAT since. You're not going to law school because I remember speaking to <laughs> another Haitian attorney, Rosemont Pierre Louis, who was the um, Manhattan, the deputy president of Manhattan under Scott Stringer. I and know her, yeah. her, I love law, law, and I want to go to law school. She's like, Oh, what kind of law do you want to do? I was like, I don't really want to practice. I just want to go to law school. She's like, No one goes to law school for fun, okay? Focus on catering. <laughs> I love it, love it, love it. That's well, I was so like, funny. you know what? Fine. I'm a chef, I guess. <laughs> Having the reinforcement is so important. What I've learned over the years is if you surround yourself with people who tell you the truth, the way that you can receive it, it's going to help you along your journey. And we need people to help support us. Sometimes yeah. the support is to say, oh, no, I'm not doing what you recommend. Sometimes it is because they can see something that we can't see. We can't and that see. helps to propel us forward. Tell us another recipe that's in that book. So I'm going to tell this one because, again, for me, like a lot of the recipes are fusion dishes of dishes that I've experienced around the world. Like I have an Escovit snapper in there, but I'll, but another favorite of mine is this um, squash bisque. Squash bisque, because the foundation is the Haitian sujumu. Sujumu is what Haitians drink every January 1st, because that's like, we call it our independent soup, because it's a very significant soup. So for your listeners who don't know, when Haiti got its independence, one of the first thing we did was like celebrate with the sujumu, because um, we were not allowed to drink the soup during slavery days. We made it, we cooked it for the slave masters, uh, but we couldn't have it. So as a sign of our humanity, as a sign of all men are created equal, we use the soup as a way to celebrate our independence. So I made, uh, and it's usually made with like, you know, root vegetables, dashins, and, and yaltia, and all of these other things they would put in it. But For the book, I made it more like a bisque-like, but still using the flavors and the seasonings to give it that nice, tasty island flavor. (laughs) It's a really delicious recipe. What I love is in each of your books, you're sharing history so that we have context. We understand the uh, food ways and the stories and, and the fact that that particular dish represents freedom. And I'm sorry that you you just pointed out something that we we hear time and again, Nadej, you had to make the soup, but you couldn't eat soup. Yeah. That's so crazy. So yeah, basically I wanted a space where uh, I can really share my love 
of creating events, bringing community together. And I was able to partner up with a phenomenal business partner, Cindy Peters, who had the same vision of really having a space where curators, tastemakers like ourselves who love to put together phenomenal events, but also they can have somewhere affordable that they can use, whether it be a cooking class, a wine tasting, a comedy show, because we have a beautiful yard that they can also share it, but also to a space where nonprofit organizations and and, and, and government, whatever it may be, things that could really serve. Because I always tell people, I like to put together functions that empower, inspire, all while having a good time. So when uh, we set out to create a space, we wanted to create a space where other individuals who have the same mindset of really creating functions that uplift could really have a space where they can do that. If you just want to rent it for your birthday to celebrate life, a wedding, great. But we also want the community to understand that this is a space for them. All the ideas and things that they've wanted to put out in the world because I'm a strong believer, someone needs it and we yes. want to provide them a space to be able to do that. And so we are tiptoeing out of uh, quarantine. You know, there there's still a lot of questions. As back and forth. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what are the protocols that you have in place so that people can feel safe if they come to use your venue? Yes. So with with COVID-19, the beautiful thing is, like I said, the space has a wonderful outdoor yard. So a lot of people have been hosting their events outside. Uh, We do temperature checks. uh, And then with the new mandate now is either you have to be vaccinated or have uh, for most events, you have to be vaccinated or have a negative PCR test to attend most people's functions. So that's not fully enforced until September 13th. But for now, we're just really ensuring that our event producers are really doing their due diligence in, in terms of uh, asking for those and for their guests that don't meet those requirements that they are wearing masks and, and, and continuing on a safe journey. But like I said, we are grateful to have an outdoor facility where people yes. can still be able to social distance and be able to breathe outside. Yeah, that's so important. Well, thank you so much. Nadege Florimond, author, chef, event producer extraordinaire. How can people get in touch with you? Oh, I'm everywhere as my name, Nadege Florimond. I'm very boring. <laughs> spell, it, spell it for us so everybody knows. Sure. It's Nadege, N as in Nancy, A as in Apple, D as in David, E as in Edward, G as in George, E as in Edward. And the last name is Florimond. That's F as in Frank, L E U. R-I-M as in Mary, O, N as in Nancy, D as in David. Nadesh Florimond, at Nadesh Florimond on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, everywhere you can find me. And um, uh, and my website is the same thing, nadeshflorimond.com. We can definitely stay in touch, follow uh, me, and you'll see some of the great events that we do produce at the venue because we regularly produce things. We have a kitty cooking class that we're doing on August 29th, and the kids look wonderful in their aprons. I have an apron line too, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, like I'm married to a Jamaican. Look, we understand that there have to be multiple streams of income. Multiple. And that, is something, <laughs> that is something I can tell you do very well. Thank you so much. It's been delightful to talk to you. Nadez Florimond. Thank you so much, Harriet. And I look forward to seeing you again, at least in real life next time. (laughs) I look forward to it. Thanks so much.